you're new with us, we are working our way through uh, Luke's gospel verse by verse. And today we are in chapter 6, verse 27 to 36, which is the second of four parts to uh, this sermon that Jesus uh, gave about how we live as, as his citizens, as kingdom citizens, as his disciples. And uh, it's, it's a bit of a challenging passage. So uh, let's pray together, not only for understanding, um, but for hearts to receive what Jesus says here and that we may live it out. Father, thank you for your word. What we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Jesus' call here to love our enemies is uh, one of the most challenging passages, I think, uh, in the Bible. If we're honest, you might find it hard to love your friends um, or your fellow church members, (laughs) let alone your enemies. But that's what we're called to do here uh, in this text. Uh, If you thought last week was challenging, welcome to the second part of this particular sermon. I sense that you were even a little hesitant to say thanks be to God uh, for uh, this this reading that we uh, we just read together. It reminded me of when we were uh, working our way through Ecclesiastes and someone read chapter one, vanity, all is vanity, and the reader said, this is God's word, and we all said thanks be to God. this, this is uh, unique because of its striking, challenging nature. And you might be tempted to somehow dismiss it in your mind or heart or maybe duck and just wait for next week. Uh, you'll be more on that time clock, you know, that's regular. And maybe we'll be on a different passage, but it's not any easier next week. Uh, so, and, and we need this passage in front of us. Because uh, this whole sermon, as I mentioned last week, is about how we live as citizens of the king. Uh, This sermon is not about how we enter the kingdom of God. That was Jesus' first recorded sermon in Luke chapter 4. We enter by grace and grace alone that Jesus came to liberate those who are oppressed. He came to set the captives free. But now, how do we live as those who have been uh, saved by Jesus? And that's what Luke 6 gives us. Jesus is laying the foundation for this new community called the church. And what we're called on to do here is to live in a way that is our lives that, are, that are, be, are to be marked by radical love, generosity, and mercy. We're being taught here to love the world the way God loves the world. Now, that sounds impossible, and it is. But as we're going to see, the good news is we have power to do this. But we've been made new creations in Christ. But what does it mean? What does it mean to love our enemies? Is that just those who uh, cheer for rival schools? Um, Is that for particular people in our vocations, in our school? And and what are we to make about all of these examples that Jesus gives? They sound outrageous. Offering your other cheek when someone slaps you on the other. Well, I need to clear the runway a little bit and just say up front that this passage raises a lot of questions that it doesn't answer. And we actually need the whole Bible to answer a lot of the questions that it, that it raises. For instance, uh, it is right to report someone who assaults you on the street. It's okay to practice self-defense. Uh, doing justice and acting with uh, compassion means that we must report cases of abuse and care for those who are abused. Jesus is not addressing issues like these, nor is he addressing issues like uh, the proper use of force by the government or military or law enforcement. Earlier in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist speaks to soldiers and he doesn't tell them to resign. He tells them to behave in a particular way. 
What Jesus is speaking about here is how his disciples respond to opposition in their following of him. We need to see the heart behind these illustrations that Jesus gives, and we need to see them as being especially relevant in cases of persecution. Remember, that is the context. This sermon began in chapter 6, verse 20, that Jesus lifts his eyes and he addresses his disciples. And he tells them the great cost that is involved in following him, but also the great reward that is theirs. And it culminated in that, that great promise to those who are persecuted for his namesake. And then he flips it and talks about those who are just living for themselves instead of the kingdom. And it's in that spirit now that we, we come to this text on loving our enemies. Those who are going to go out into this world and be opposed for following Jesus. How is it that we respond to those who oppose us? How do we love those enemies of the gospel? I think that's the most pointed application uh, of the text. This text is really about how we deal with outsiders, the unbelieving world that may be opposed to Christianity, may be opposed to the gospel. Next week passage, I think, refers more to those who are inside the community of faith and how we care and love for each other. So I think here are three lines of thinking you may think along as we dive into this text, locally, globally, and publicly. Locally, how do you respond when someone scoffs at you for being a Christian? At your work, perhaps, or, or your school, talks behind your back, uh, gossips about you because of your belief in the gospel. How do you deal with those individuals? Globally, if you are placed in a country, in a city, like many of our missionaries are, that are hostile to the gospel, that will inevitably attract various opponents, how do they engage with those who, uh, who respond to them in such a way? Publicly, how do we respond to public critics of the Christian faith, like authors or speakers or those in the media? Well, Christians, or at least those who claim to be Christians, have not always responded to those critics Christianly, right? Uh, Richard Dawkins, who is a, a well-known atheist, uh, has you know, went on video reading some hate mail that he's actually received from those who profess to be Christians. That's not how we respond to enemies of the gospel. We respond rather by longing for their spiritual good, by loving them in view of the gospel, by remembering that when we were enemies, Jesus loved us and brought us in. And so I think hopefully that framework will help us as we look at this text in just two parts. First of all, love your enemies. And secondly, love your enemies in view of your Father in heaven. So first here is the exhortation. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. <clears throat> this is the first use of love in Luke's gospel in the verb form. It's the word agape, this kind of love that God has shown in giving up his son, a sacrificial love. And the first use of love in the verb form is the most challenging, love for your enemies. It's really challenging, isn't it, when you live in this angry society where nobody's into loving their enemies. <laughs> Everybody's into shaming their enemies. Everyone's into canceling their enemies. Everyone's into maligning their enemies and not even representing fairly their enemies. Jesus says something really radical here. He says, love them. And he doesn't just leave it out there as some abstract, you just love them. He gives us unnatural deeds, words, and prayers that show how we love. Unnatural deeds do good to those who hate us. Unnatural words, blessing those who curse us. 
unnatural prayers, praying for those who abuse us. Each imperative in the present tense implying a regular behavior on the part of a Christian. We are to regularly, as Jesus' disciples, do good to people who hate us. This is a crazy religion, isn't it? To, to, to bless those who curse us and to actually pray for those who abuse us. Doing good, think about this, involves action, while blessing and praying involves your heart. Jesus doesn't let us off the hook by saying you can do certain things but not have your heart attached to it. Nor does he say that you, know, you just need to, in your heart, love them, but that love rather is to be demonstrated with practical action. So love is not just some feeling, it's not sentimentality, it's not superficially acting, but not having a heart that is inclined to love your enemy. It involves the kind of love that Jesus has shown the world that flowed from his heart of love that resulted in actions at the cross where he reconciled enemies to God. That's Luke's first command that he gives us with the word love as Jesus teaches here to love your enemies. Who are our enemies? Well, that's Duke fans, right? Or... Uh, <laughs> Carolina fans. <laughs> uh, I remember several years ago, my son Joshua was watching that documentary, I Still Hate Christian Leitner. You guys don't know who Leitner is. He was a wicked guy who played for Duke. And uh, Kentucky fans cannot forgive him. And, he, and Joshua said, won't that hurt his feelings, this guy, that there's a show called I Hate Christian Leitner? And I said, no, he deserves it. But anyway, um, <laughs> our enemies are not uh, sports enemies, okay? Um, but, it, but these, these could refer, it's not specified, it could be personal, it could be religious, it could be political. Is that possible for a Democrat to love a Republican? Don't leave. Uh, right? I think the most pointed, again, application of this text, though I think we should apply it to every, every category, is in cases of persecution, especially as Jesus is preparing the world, preparing the disciples, rather, to go into the world and love those who will be opposed to them. And further, Jesus is going to demonstrate this in the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus shows love for Gentiles, Samaritans, other enemies of Israel. This was not just revolutionary teaching, they would watch Jesus' revolutionary example. So, as we deal with those who are enemies of the faith, those who seek to abuse, oppose, malign, right, uh, Christians, we are to be hopeful that our enemies will change and not resentful when they don't change. Enemies are to be prayed for. Haters are to be treated kindly. Revilers are to be blessed and maligners taken to the Father in prayer. Love your enemies. And he puts some real teeth to it, doesn't he? Notice those examples that he gives us. Do good to those who hate you. It's not entirely new to Jesus. We read about an example for, in uh, Exodus 23, verse 4. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. Now remember that today, uh, if you're out and about and you see your enemy's ox. Or Proverbs 25, verse 1. If your enemy is hungry, what do you do? Give him food to eat. Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 12, and then he says, We overcome evil by doing good. 1 John tells us that we should not be surprised that the world hates us. Why do they hate us? Well, because some love darkness rather than light. Some are attracted to the gospel, some are attracted to righteousness and grace and are converted, but some will hate it. 
But what do we do in response? We do good to them. And then he gives the, bless, the, the example to bless those who curse you. Those who curse you are those who want to harm you. In a religious sense, they want you to be cursed by God. And what's, what is our response? It's not retaliation. It's we, lo- we want God to cause them to flourish. We want God to be gracious to them and bless them. Or, how about this one? Pray for those who abuse you. Now, we need to, again, be quick to look at all the scripture when we see certain verses. This is certainly one of them, I think. Jesus is not saying there shouldn't be any punishment for injustice or abuse. And when Paul alludes to this text in Romans 12, he follows that with Romans 13, where he talks about the legitimate use of uh, uh, authority by the government and, and the, the ability to wield the sword. And so we know that reporting a crime is a moral responsibility. And it's also an act of compassion. And failing to do so is evil. But again, I think we have more here in mind of, of persecution. And we see this on display in various places as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, those who would be his enemy. As he says, you are the, the, the ones who kill the prophets. And they would put him to death. And, but what does Jesus say hanging on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Or when Stephen is stoned, put to death, the first Christian martyr in Acts 7, he says, Father, do not hold this sin against them. Peter gives us that instruction in 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23, to follow after Jesus' example, who did not revile in return. And so we have another example there that is, that is quite remarkable. Pray for those who abuse us. And then what about this one, to offer our other cheek? Now again, I think Jesus here has, is not talking about the, the law courts. I think he has, more, uh, he has insult in mind here more than the injury. Um, so if you're out and about today and someone hits you, and you just turn and say, hit me again, I'm a Christian. Um, <laughs> this is a virtue. Uh, I went to church today, hit me, hit me again. I don't think that's what uh, Jesus has in mind. We, we don't need to interpret this too woodenly, uh, meaning that we, we never engage in self-defense or that we never protect ourselves from injury or death. Uh, I read about a, uh, an Irish boxer who became a preacher. He had a very interesting take on this text. He was uh, preaching at an outdoor uh, church event and three hecklers came by and was giving him a hard time and, and one of them hit him. And so he said, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. So he turned the other cheek, and they hit him on that cheek. And then he proceeded to knock all three of them out. <laughs> and, and he said, uh, Jesus gave me no further instructions. Uh, <laughs> I, I like that take, don't you? Yeah. You can hit me twice, but I'm coming after you. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think Jesus is talking about a punch in the jaw, but an insult. And that is displayed in Matthew's account of this when he says, um, that, that whenever you are slapped on the right side of the cheek, meaning a backhanded slap that was given as an insult, it was more about the insult than, than the injury. And if persecution is the primary thing in mind, that slap elsewhere in, in early Christian literature refers to exclusion from the synagogue. And we know that many early Christians were de-synagogued as they were put out of the synagogue because of their preaching of Christ. And so the point is when you are insulted, for preaching the gospel for your faith, you absorb the insult. You long for that person to be converted. You pray for them to be converted. 
And then on the issue of lending, he says, offer your tunic. The clo- the, a cloak was your outer robe, and the tunic was worn next to the skin. This might envision a case of banditry for missionaries, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And Jesus says a radical thing, doesn't he, when he says, if they take the outer garment, go ahead and give them the other one. It'll be a shirtless missionary. I also like that idea. Um, a, t- a tank top missionary. Now again, we cannot take these illustrations too woodenly because if we were always giving people stuff, right, we would have no stuff. <laughs> We'd all be naked today and have no money. No, no way to contribute to the mission. But, but Jesus here is talking about being generous, being um, holding to possessions lightly, recognizing that, that we live for another world. When, when uh, the writer of Hebrews is addressing the Christians who were persecuted for their faith, he said that you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and a more abiding one. This stuff's not that important to us, right? Now, then Jesus gives two principles. Verses 30 and 31. Give without exception of return, and then he gives what is the so-called golden rule. So, in 30, give to everyone who begs from you, and from who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So be generous and don't keep score. Don't just have reciprocal exchanges with people. If I do this, I'll expect something in return. Later he says, that's what anybody can do. That's what the unregenerate person can do. But you rather are to be generous from those who beg. Now again, we have to use discernment when it involves caring for the poor. We know Paul says things like if a person is not willing to work, they shouldn't eat. The issue here is the heart. Are we willing to give up possessions? Knowing that God owns it all and that Jesus is better than all. And and not try to put someone in our debt for our generous giving. But simply to be generous as Jesus gave up his life for us. And then the golden rule, verse 31. You've heard this text many times if you've been around the church at all. And sometimes you'll hear politicians and other people in the public sphere quote it. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now what's interesting here is that the golden rule in the negative, uh, in, in a negative statement was common in Jesus' day. For example, Hillel said, what is hateful to you do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. What I mean by this is often, and I think that's how most people have understood the golden rule, but that's not the way Jesus puts it. He doesn't say, don't do this so someone won't do it to you. That's kind of how we teach our kids sometimes about behavior. You know, you show up and, and you're like, little Johnny says, he hit me. Well, did you hit him? Yeah. Well, don't hit him and he won't hit you, right? Um, But usually, if you just look at the golden rule as as this negative thing, it's about your own self-preservation. But Jesus goes beyond self-preservation. He goes to self-sacrifice. He puts it in the positive sense, right? When he says, as you would wish that others would do to you, go do that for them. Be proactive. He puts it positively and proactively. In other words, it's not enough that we abstain from these actions of abusing people, harming people, cursing people. We need to do that. But it's that we must be active in well-doing, regardless of how they might respond or not respond to it. It's not about self-preservation. It's about self-sacrifice. 
It's about giving ourselves to other people for their good. And that is consistent with the character of God, who was active in his grace, who was merciful and kind even to the ungrateful. That's our God. So Christians are not just to be people who are known for what we don't do. We're to be known for what we do. We are proactive in blessing the world. And that kind of Christianity changes the world, right? N.T. Wright puts it uh, eloquently when he says, the kingdom that Jesus preached and lived was all about a glorious, uproarious, absurd generosity. Think of the best thing you can do for the worst person and go ahead and do it. Think of what you'd really like someone to do for you and do it for them. Think of the people to whom you are tempted to be nasty and lavish generosity on them instead. These instructions have a fresh, he says, spring-like quality. They are all about the new life bursting out energetically like flowers growing through concrete. You look at this text and you say, man, that is a wild, these are some wild thoughts. Yeah, it's like a flower growing out of concrete. That's what a Christian's life is to be like. People see it and they're like, that's unusual. That is unique. How did that happen? Our God made it happen. He made it happen. Jesus then gives us some contrast, doesn't he, in 32 to 34. And he says, if you just operate out of this, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. You bought my drink, I'll buy your drink. You're not any different than unregenerate humanity. If you only love those who love you, if you only do good to those who've done good to you, you are not showing yourself to be in any way different than any old sinner that's ever walked the earth. But one of the practical ways we show that we have been transformed by the gospel is that we love even our enemies. You know, Christopher Hitchens, another well-known atheist, once said that religion poisons everything. And he cited a whole list of examples in history, and he's right, a lot of awful things have been done in the name of religion. A lot of awful things have been done in the name of Christianity. But true Christianity doesn't poison everything. True Christianity, living out this vision of life that Jesus gives us, blesses the world. It turns the world upside down. So do a bit of self-examination here about your love. Four types of love. Ordinary love, loving people who like us. That's ordinary. Self-love. Loving people who are like us. Extraordinary love. Loving those who are unlike us. And revolutionary love. Loving those who dislike us. Jesus is calling us to a revolutionary way of life. We need hope to do that, don't we? We need power. And I think we see it in verses 35 to 36 as Jesus draws our attention to our Father in heaven, reminding us of the nature of our God. When he restates the actions in verse 35, love your enemies, do good, lend, expect nothing in return, and notice, here is a motivation, your reward will be great. You see, every action that you take in this life is noticed by Jesus. It is recognized in heaven. And it is rewarded in heaven. Your reward will be great. You think about, man, this is so hard to love my enemy. I, I hate my enemy. I want to hurt my enemy. Well, you know what? 
we have a short life. And soon that trial will be over. Soon heaven will be our reality. You have to keep the end in mind in order to deal with the, this momentary time you've got. It is very natural not to, to want to love your enemy and to do good to those who hate you. How do we do this? We realize this is a little short time we've got. And our reward will be great. And we, it will be worth it. It requires faith to believe this. This is, how, this is how practical eschatology is. Your view of the end. Do you really believe in it? If you do, you take these words and you say, I'm going to love my enemies. Notice another motivation. You will be called sons of the Most High. What an idea. In other words, you will demonstrate that you're a son and daughter of God by how you love your enemies. That is remarkable, isn't it? Think about this. Another place where Jesus says you demonstrate you're a son or daughter of God is in a very similar text when he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Of all the things that you could do to demonstrate that you're a son or daughter of God, what Jesus selects is a peacemaker and one who loves his enemies. That's how you demonstrate to the world that you really do belong to God. Why is that? Because that's what God has done for us. He's loved his enemies. He's put on display. He's broken the hostility, and he's brought us peace. He's settled us, and he says, you want to show the world a practical way that you're a Christian? Go love your enemies. It'll be like a flower coming out of concrete. Where did that come from? God did that. And the more I re revel in his love for me, the more I think about how he's brought me peace, the more I want to do that in this world, right? So here's a way to think about your relationship to your enemy. You have to love that other person in a triangular way. That is, you don't just think about you and them, you think about another party, namely God. If you try to love apart from God, you can't do it. We, we love them in view of our Father in heaven. That's how we do it. And then he says, here's the nature of your Father. Well, what a statement this is. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Later Jesus says, in talking about prayer, you who know how to give good gifts to your children, you who are evil, he says, <laughs> kind of like passing comment, you're evil, and you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more the Father in heaven? And he's kind to the ungrateful. Do you find it easy to be kind to the ungrateful? No, me either. And how do we do it? We view that ungrateful person triangularly in view of our God, who, listen, has loved us when we were ungrateful, brought us to faith in Jesus, and I dare say we lived many days this week not showing gratitude to our God. And you know what? His kindness still abounded in our lives. We didn't even recognize the millions of mercies that he bestowed upon us. This is how kind God is. And when Jesus says, he makes it rain on the just and the unjust. But no one seems to have a problem with what's called the problem of good. They have a problem with the so-called problem of evil. How could a loving God allow evil to exist? A lot of people ask. No one seems to ask, how could a holy God lavish any goodness on sinful mankind? No one wakes up with that problem on their mind because people think they're, they're entitled to God's grace, that they're owed God's goodness, that it's God's job to be good to us. It's not. 
It's a mercy. It's, a, it's an unspeakable grace that he was good to us. He's lavished grace upon the most evil tyrants that have ever existed. Hitler got to see a sunset. Pol Pot got to experience common grace. And dictators across history have. And that's how good our God is. And so we're going to come across ungrateful people, evil people, enemies. What do we do? We need to think about our God in order to respond to them rightly. And then he summarizes it, doesn't he? Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Our God is merciful. We see it all over creation. Psalm 145. He is good to all. He has mercy over all that he has made. His mercies, as the lamentation says, are new every morning. And when we extend mercy and kindness, we glorify our God. People should say, like father, like son. He's taken on the father's resemblance in showing mercy to those who are his enemies. His mercies are endless. They are boundless. And that's what his children are to do, to show that kind of mercy to people. As recipients of mercy, we show mercy. So what is it that will empower us to love our enemies? In short, it is the gospel. It is by reflecting on the fact that God has dealt mercifully with us in Jesus Christ. He has put his reconciling love on display at the cross. Prior to the cross, Jesus washes feet and he even washes the betrayer's feet, Judas. And then in just a few hours, he would endure all manner of hate and evil. Isaiah prophesied about it, saying that he was despised and rejected. Uh, the, the, the prophecy about Jesus, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. He took the abuse. He was oppressed and afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. And at the cross, our Savior says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And Jesus, or Paul says regarding this, Jesus died for the ungodly. He died for sinners. He died for enemies in Romans chapter 5. As we sing around here, once, once his enemy, now seated at his table. Jesus, thank you. And the more we can cultivate that kind of gratitude at the sheer amazement of the love of Jesus Christ, the better we can love our enemies. So be amazed, Christian, at the love of Christ. Be amazed at the mercy of the Father the kindness of the Father, the kindness that he has uh, demonstrated to us. Be amazed at the ineffable love of Jesus Christ. This love that was exemplified by loving his enemies. This love that is now empowered by Jesus Christ, who has transformed us. And let's go love the world in a striking way, in a unique way. Let's adorn the gospel we preach by how we love this world. Until we gather with the redeemed from every tribe, people, language, and nation, once enemies, now family. And on that day, we'll be glad we did. And our reward will be great in heaven. And our faith will end in sight. May God write his word upon our hearts today. Father, we thank you for the wonderful news that you give us regarding your character and your nature. And we know that you are kind to the ungrateful. We experience that. And we pray that you would increase our gratitude, give us eyes to see, all that you are and all that you have done. Lord Jesus, even now as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, a moment in which we literally say thank you for what you have done, for making enemies family. We pray that gratitude would arise in our hearts. You deserve all praise for what you've done. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.